Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Um, today, V Radio is once again proud to present Open Source Ecology, which you can check out at openfarmtech.org. Uh, tonight, I have two people representing uh, Open Source Ecology. We have Marcin Jakubowski, PhD in physics, and William Cleaver. All right, gentlemen, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience, starting with you, Marcin. Yeah, hi, everybody. And um, just if you want to, today I'll present a, a discussion that I presented. It's called Economy in a Box, basically talking about how we can talk about creating realistic communities of tomorrow today. So that's, that's what we'll, we'll be discussing. And, and if you want to follow this, there's a presentation online that you can follow called, if you Google open, open Source Ecology, Economy in a Box presentation, you'll find what, uh, actually a video and the slides to what I'm talking about tonight. But yeah, glad to be here. William. Hi, uh, yeah, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Okay, yes, uh, this is William or Will. Um, I first came across open source ecology, uh, I think it was through the Humanity Plus presentation, and then through the last interview that you did, uh, Neil, with Marjun. Uh, I was in England at the time, and just so inspired by what I heard that I, to put it as simply as possible, quit my job and got myself over here. And I've been <laughs> here on the land for the last nearly four months now. That actually makes me really happy that you connected that way. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks to you, uh, and um, and yeah, and it's been great so far. It's been a great insight into the the possibilities of open source technology and and how how far it could really help us. Uh, it's been been great, great, great experience so far. And oh, yeah, yeah as you might be able to tell by my accent, originally from England, and yeah, that's about it. Excellent, mm -hmm. excellent. Well, Marcin, um, given that you're going to be doing a presentation, I originally scheduled this for an hour. I'm going to go ahead and extend that so that you have all the time you need to talk. And um, yeah. if uh, we end up like you know running out of things to talk about, we can end the show whenever it's convenient to you. So um, I'm going to go ahead and give you the floor to go ahead and uh, give us this presentation. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Okay, excellent. So we'll start with a decent overview of the work that we're doing here with respect to what we call the Global Village Construction Set, a set of open source infrastructure tools for building resilient communities. And then I'm going to actually focus the discussion to, to a small subset of these technologies and how a small group of people, say, say about eight people, six to eight people, can start off and actually make this their life in, in the form of a pretty interesting new lifestyle, modern lifestyle that uses this, this kind of work here. So, to back up a little bit, let's start with our general question. What's our problem statement? We kind of ask a very basic question, and that is, what would happen if society simply used all the knowledge it had, all the wisdom it's acquired through the generations to make a better world? Hmm, how about that? Well, we'd, what we'd end up doing is building resilient communities uh, or communities that are adaptable, sustainable, regenerative, where high, high quality of life is the standard, where meaning and, and fulfillment are the norm. So that's our basic concept. And we're, we're taking that and saying, what is the smallest scale 
at which such a modern civilization can be created using existing knowledge so that instead of megalopoli and, and, and huge centralized systems, we could have a hope of doing something on a smaller, more manageable scale that is free, therefore, from a lot of the problems that society may face. So we call it miniaturization of civilization. What is the lowest scale that we can go? Well, we claim that with about 200 people placed on land, and raw land even, we can start and create a modern civilization with all the technology that, that we have today, uh, qualified, let's say, to maybe the 90s level, including even computer chip fabrication. Okay, let's get, let's get into some details of how this could be done. That sounds like a radical proposition. So uh, I'm going to try to convince you. This is, yeah, this is not, not so far out. So let's start first with the major question of energy okay well we need as humans we take all these uh, different resources from the earth with the assistance of of energy we convert them into the 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 stuff of modern civilization so energy is of course a central question and to uh, therefore the simple statement is if we had abundant energy resources we can we can do just about anything so if we, for example, take existing solar concentrator technology that we have today and make it more accessible or affordable through the open source means, then we'd be in good, in good shape. Now, here's the fact. Did you know that to power the entire United States of America would require only 0.3% of the surface area of the United States to cover all those needs? Okay. That, yes, I've heard yeah. that actually. What type of uh, power were you talking about using? Apologize for interrupting. Go ahead. We are talking about simple mirrors. It's almost like smoke and mirrors. We're talking about mirrors focusing sunlight onto con con concentrating mirrors aligned at a target that multiply the sun's ray rays to heat water, which then spins turbines. I mean, that's a proven technology that's used in the southwest. There's certain companies that are really growing doing that technology. But the fact is, if we did that on 0.3% of the land area, we would cover all of the electricity needs for this country. That's insane. Well, so why isn't it happening? For one, the, the technology is, may still be more expensive, and that's where the open source method comes in. We're saying here that we've shown in other projects, in open source software and other hardware projects, have demonstrated that you can get like five to tenfold cost reduction. Well, even if you were to get, say, like a factor of two cost reduction on this, then we could utilize this, this abundant solar energy uh, with open source solar concentrator electric power. Well, this kind of looks like the energy question is not really existent here. So then we move on to materials. If we have abundance in energy, that means we can have material prosperity. Well, to give you two examples of what's, what modern technology can get you is take clay, which is aluminosilicate. From that, you can smelt aluminum. Well, that's also known as advanced civilization. Now, take sand, refine silicon from it. That's the digital age. Hey, this is uh, rocks, dirt, and twigs below our feet turned into modern civilization. So we're in the age of the Star Trek replicator, and that kind of 
I mean, that's not, not, not a far cry to talk about it. For example, uh, some of you may have heard about the, the 3D open source printer called RepRap. It's a um, 3D printer that prints out of plastic. You can download the design from the internet. You can print it on your desktop. And that's real, real today. It would cost you like $10,000 a little while ago to get one of these machines. But now, for about $400 in parts, you can build that from open source plans that you can download from the internet. So you get a little mini China on your desktop. Well, we're uh, showing here that the technology base today is, is just awesome. And with that said, we're taking a, uh, the work on the, on the resilient community construction set or the global village construction set that we're doing here is basically distilling some of the key infrastructure technologies for food, energy, housing, transportation, fuels, fabrication, and picking out a small subset of 40 of them and open sourcing them to make replicable, low-cost infrastructures for modern civilization. Well, we're not just talking about it. We've built some prototypes here. We've completed a prototype of the open source tractor over a year ago. Right now, we're actually completing the prototype two of this open source tractor. We've done things like an open source torch table prototype. We've done other things um, like the compressed earth brick press now, which is our first product at the full product release stage. Now, this is a a machine that can that can get you high quality building material by compressing earths. It's called compressed earth blocks. And this machine is capable of producing 16 bricks per minute. It's automatic. It's actually our first full product release. Now, the concept here is that by doing that, we're able to, to crack some cost barriers. We're on the specific example of the compressed earth brick press. We're um, if you want to build it yourself, you can do so at the cost of about $3,000 in materials. Uh, the next competitor, if you were to buy this off the shelf, would cost you about, about $45,000. So that's significant. And we're selling these, actually, that's our first product. We're selling these turnkey at $8,000. And we're able to capture significant value by the labor of our production efforts. So Examples such as the Liberator CEB press, the compressed earth brick press I told you about, um, and the RepRap, the open source printer, uh, are showing, for the CEB press, we're showing like five to 10 times price reduction. For RepRap, that's shown a 30-fold factor of cost reduction. So this, these economics are real uh, and imply that we can get onto post-scarcity. So, Post-scarcity really means that we're replacing scarce resources with ubiquitous ones. Real goods gotten with, with resources that are all around us if we have the access to, to energy, such as, well, a good example of, a, of the local, local resources, of course, the compressed earth bricks. I mean, that's, that's clear. You've got soil under your feet. You can build advanced housing with that. And our goal is to, is to build replicable villages, what we call viral village, and what you guys all know as the resource-based economy, the fact that you're able to use your local resources to meet needs by the wise use of technology. Therefore, well, just as a practical sideline to that, if you're using local resources, 
and you're in balance with your immediate environment, then things like population explosion, I mean, that doesn't exist anymore. Or things like resource conflicts, those go away as well. The, the requirement for the resource-based economy to work, though, is that we have to compete with mainstream production, and we believe we can. Our, our initial results that we've been getting are, are indicating that. And thereby, we can create a real economy, not the funny money of, of modern speculation. We don't talk about any, any doomsday scenarios. It's, it's about products that, that meet needs and, and meet them effectively so that we don't need to go back to the Stone Age nor compromise our quality of life in any way. We're talking about things like Industry 2.0, the local fabrication capacity to produce a lot of these things, and therefore autonomy for you and me. We, um, we're talking about you know, one, of, one of the features of the, the construction set is what we call RepLab. It's the open source fab lab. It's basically a small set of, set of fabrication tools, including the torch table I mentioned, the 3D printing, CNC, metal, machining, and up to things like an induction furnace for producing metal from scrap, hot rolling, forging, casting, to basically get, get to the ability to, to build modern civilization from scrap. That's not a far cry at all. Okay, that's RepLab. So the point of this is to deliver the promise of technology, which is to, to work less. I mean, isn't it kind of funny that with better and better technology, we're, you know, which is supposed to make our life easier, we're ending up working longer hours, losing meaning, getting disconnected, and causing all kinds of problems in this planet. Well, we're about returning to becoming integrated humans and uh, by means of open source technology and skills, know-how, the access to local resources to gain charge of our lives once again. And at the factory farm, like myself here, Will, William, myself, and others who, who came here, we're, we're living this kind of life, basically developing the technologies, using them, and um, really doing a social experiment, which aims to show that yeah, we can get, gain an unprecedented quality of life and a different type of lifestyle where we just take charge of our lives by, by our, our unleashed productivity, unleashed skills, open collaboration, and basically open sourcing the entire economy for the, for the end of making life better for everybody. That's, um, that's basically a, a summary of what we do here. And in the near future, like right now, we're preparing for our building adventures this year. We're finishing up the, the open source tractor prototype two, which we're going to use to to do construction with a compressed earth brick press and preparing the equipment for that building session. And our goal is to, to have about four people here full time by the end of this year and build up to about 12 people by next year, and we're, we're all supported by contributions from, from the crowds and from input from all over according to the open source method. Okay, but now I'm going to get a little specific and take a little subset of the 40-piece 40, 40 technology set 
just just as a practical example where you can kind of wrap your head around what what possibilities you have if you have a small number of people and a powerful little set of equipment. We call the initial version of the economy in a box, and we're taking these following pieces of the Global Village construction set. We take the compressed earth brick press, which I mentioned. We take the open source tractor, an automatic sawmill, 50 kilowatt wind turbine, haying equipment and a baler, a pelletizer, modern steam power combined heat power system, and a CNC torch table. Okay, these are eight pieces out of the entire 40-piece Global Village construction set. And as a good example, let's, let's, let's discuss what can we get out of these, these tools. Well, from the CB press, we get bricks for construction. From the tractor, we get our food and construction ability, utility help, I mean, mechanical help. Sawmill gets you lumber. The, turbine, the 50 kilowatt wind turbine gets you electricity. And the combination of, of haying, baler, pelletizer, and steam engine are your fuel and engine power from local grass. So you pelletize local biomass, and you can run an entire, well, an engine, an engine for electric and mechanical power from that. And then the CNC torch table gets you fabrication. Okay, moving on in this. Well, what did we just cover? We covered just about 100% food and housing security, 100% off-grid electricity, 100% fuel sufficiency, a little bit of productive economy, all in these tools. These are a super simple way to, to accomplish all those functions. Well, let's talk about the team needed to handle these, these pieces of equipment. You would need an architect slash builder. You'd need a farmer or permaculturist, what we really call the open source agroecologist. You need a forester. You need an engineer, where the engineer is defined as the person who runs the steam engine infrastructure which, by the way, is also applied to the solar concentrator heat power, the steam engine is. And then you have the custom fabricator. Five people. This is like we're exploring the minimus, minimum, minimal team that can pull off a, a decent quality of life by, by their skills. Okay, well, we need some money to start this, to, to get all this equipment. Well, how much would it cost? If you had the custom fabricator available to, to use his skill and services to produce all this equipment, you would need a total of, of $31,000 to build all of this. And I can break that down for you. You can also look up on a, on a presentation. But the CEB press, 3,000 in materials, tractor, about 4,000 in materials, sawmill, about 4,000, wind turbine, 7,000, baler, 3,000, pelletizer, 2,000, modern steam power, 5,000, torch table, 3,000. Well, those are the prices for materials that if you had a person to, to use their skills to build them, you would need 31,000. Okay, well, in this package then, how do we support ourselves? If we were to produce machines such as tractors and CEB presses, the, the kinds of numbers we're demonstrating here are about $5,000 earned per two weeks of fabrication time. That's, that's the kind of figure based on the fact that, for example, the CEB press takes us about two weeks of labor to produce one of them. Then you've got the wind turbine producing about $10 worth of electricity a day. And from the, the fuel infrastructure, you can be producing $3,000 worth of fuel per three days of labor. Or uh, the figures are if, if you've got one custom fabricator in this community, 
that person can pull in like a hundred thousand dollars a year um, in just plain production use and then the production of course expands to a lot of different other products from open source plans okay we we therefore come up with a, a lifestyle option which we kind of <laughs> I don't know if this word might be controversial but we call it subsilience the combination of subsistence and resilience. What is resilience? Resilience is um, evolved from sustainable communities where after sustainable you have regenerative communities, communities that become uh, better over time, and then resilient, meaning that communities are not only sustainable and regenerative but also adaptable. So subsilience is, is the combination of subsistence and resilience, a life w which we're implying a lifestyle where your local community, your community of as little as the five people and up to our 200 goal, 200 person community, uh, you end up providing just about anything that you need by using modern technology. What we are showing or proposing here is that by flexible specialization, uh, people taking on a wide wide array of different tasks and cross-training also and becoming as skilled as they can, you can have an existence where you spend about two hours per day doing work and then committing the rest of your life for things that are more meaningful to you. So the promise is unprecedented quality of life in terms of control over your life. This, this implies an un unplugged lifestyle, and for the first time, the ability to evolve to freedom. You know, we've all the debts and the modern lifestyle that's getting faster and faster. That's not an opportunity for most people today. So we can do better. Just to um, discuss a little bit on the strategy for what we're doing here, right now we are at the stage of developing the Global Village construction set, and we can really say that we're only like 140th complete. We've got the compressed earth brick press as a full release status uh, device, uh, meaning that you can either download the plans or you can buy it turnkey from us, but we've got a long way to go. Well, that, that's where we are right now. And with respect to this, this five-person community that I was discussing, after we have that developed, we also include, uh, start developing an education, immersion education program, like a two-year equivalent of your college education, except that you learn real stuff. So after we develop the, the GVCS, the Global Village Construction Set, we can train people. Now, if you've got a few graduates, um, say you take 10 graduates from this program, then you can capitalize, get together with your friends, these people who, who have the know-how, say 10 people pull, pull in like $10,000 each to, to put in like $100,000 to start up a, a new facility or a new community or settlement. Um, that's how much money you would need. Say 50000 for land and the rest, I mentioned about 30000 for the, the capital base. So you would take one of the people to, or say four people, fabricate all your infrastructure in about two months and then get the whole community of 10 people to build, like say for two months with 10 people. And then there you go. It's like you go into the middle of, of raw land or an uninhabited island, drop this box of tools, and, and build your new life. Well, um, regarding the strategy for this, what we're doing here is we're really focusing on the economics of abundance, that, that the fact that we gain access to the tools and wisdom to use the local resources, that's a focus. 
Of course, this process is open source, and we follow a certain set of criteria for all the tools that we develop. Now, think about what would happen if, if a lot of people on this planet were to collaborate and build all these powerful tools together so that you really could have a, an incredible productive base that you know you can can really bootstrap yourself financially and to financial independence and to prosperity really easily. Well, that's the promise to to convert citizen consumers to producers. That that applies to a lot a lot of us. And this also implies the death of the salesman. I mean think about how much energy is wasted today by the marketing function or sales and everyone's trying to sell something including us where where I still have to spend a little bit of the time marketing our wares it's like we need supporters and so forth uh, I'd rather that not be there so I can focus on, on more meaningful things well what's to be said about the feasibility of all this stuff um, we're doing nothing new it's we're just open sourcing existing technology that's our basic game plan like we take what is already available, proven, and proven to, to create a modern lifestyle, and we, we just open source that, reduce the price, make it more accessible, understandable, and we're on a way to making society better. And the first success, we can say, is the Liberator Compressed Earth Brick Press. It's um, an example where we just reduce the price of that machine by a factor of about 5 to 10. So that's... That's a contribution to anybody who wants, wants easier access to that kind of a machine. Regarding the, the kind of properties, and I'll wrap up pretty quickly here it's, um, in case uh, this is getting too lengthy, but um, <laughs> on the, wh what kind of design specifications do we follow in our work? We've coined what's called the OSC specifications for post-scarcity economics, and that means that all the tools that we develop have to have these particular properties, and that is they have to be really economically significant. That means you've got to be producing important things, like things that produce your energy or produce your food or housing, not like maybe like teddy bears, which are not necessary for you to survive on a piece of land. They're nice, but you can build them later once you have your, your productive capacity in place. We focus on the second property, open documentation, open source, um, open source method. Third property is we work on distributive economics, meaning open business models. We don't only open source the technology itself, but also the means to produce that technology, and that's the open source business model. Therefore, you have a potential of, of that enterprise being transformative in terms of changing the world. We focus a lot on systems design, so integrated systems. Like To give you an example, I guess that's a, that's a decent one, because everyone laughs at the modern steam engine. They're saying, oh, well, that went out of style you know, 100 years ago. Well, that may be true if you, if you look at, at it from a very narrow perspective, but we can argue that from a systems perspective, the steam engine is actually twice as efficient as an internal combustion engine or a diesel. Why? Well... The diesels and, and ICEs, regular engines, take a very highly refined fuel, maybe like, which is, say, a 10% fraction of, of uh, crude oil. Well, for the steam engine, it's an external combustion engine. You can use any kind of fuel. You can use pelletized biomass, which is what we're proposing. And since that's so abundant, if you go through some numbers, you can actually see that uh, you can make a claim for, for that being about twice as efficient if you also include the costs of war and, and the military-industrial state and 
and the transportation costs involved and so forth and the bureaucracy or politics, you start to see that from a system's design, the solutions that are desirable may be much different than you thought. So that's, that's, that's an interesting point. Okay, moving on with OSE specifications, some of the other properties about our wares are we aim to be as transparent in the dev development process and production process as possible, so we invite people to collaborate and join and our plans are open. Uh, we have to focus on efficient devices like the CB press. With that thing cranking out 16 bricks per minute, we cannot call for any more efficiency than that. Okay, next, next item is simplicity and low cost. Well, Will's almost finishing up the second prototype of the tractor, and that thing is simple. It's a box with wheels, and you'll see it in our forthcoming videos, but you'll see that as an epitome of simplicity and therefore low cost. We also follow lifetime, modular, scalable, design for disassembly principles. So that bottom line being, if you have a device that lasts a lifetime, you can make a claim that that's, you know, that's going to save you a factor of tenfold energy over the life cycle of its, of its use. Okay. We also talk about localization, where you can talk about local production, but you can also talk about local sourcing of materials for production and local production of the machines that allow you to take the local resources into the local economy. So there's a lot of different levels of localization that people don't yet talk about. They just typically say, oh, this was produced locally. Well, you can go much deeper on that issue. Okay, uh, to wrap up OSC specifications, we're good for the environment and replicable and feasible. That's, that, those are the, the main features that we look for in what we design. Well, I'm going to wrap up here because that's, that's a mouthful of what I said. <laughs> the conclusions are the Global Village Construction Set there's a small subset of technologies that we're working on which is sufficient for creating advanced civilization therefore, and, well, a productive economy, therefore means of exchange. Um, if you have the local production, you have, you have the politics, economies follow that. We're seeing some promising results. I mean, the, the concept of having the life-size Lego set of building tools and, and tractor infrastructure and so forth, interchangeable parts, motors and implements and the thing, all the things fitting together like, like the engine unit on our tractor can be used for all kinds of other purposes. You can take it off one device onto another. Well, that's very promising results. We're demonstrating all of this as we speak. And as far as the price ticket, to open source these 40 technologies it takes about two million bucks, basically, to, to open source the world. Or just, let's say, open source a critical set of tools with which you can then go and fabricate deeper and deeper levels of technology until you get to everything, to the point of even smelting aluminum from clay or, or silicon from sand. So that's what we do. We're, so I also want to ask you, any of you listeners, uh, we've, right now we've got 112 true fans which are people who are subscribing at $10 a month to subscribe our work. So if you can, please do this. Just subscribe. This is important work. Um, we haven't seen, well, really, we haven't seen anything yet. We've, we're basically just started. We're little babies on this operation. But help us and get involved and so forth. So at that, I'll, I'll quit. 
Um, look up our work at openfarmtech.org slash weblog. That's a continuing documentation of our work as it evolves here. So with that, let's, uh, I'm, that's it for me now. <laughs> okay. All right, Martin. Well, yeah. um, I've got to tell you, it's really exciting to hear all of the major developments that you guys have been making. Let me break this down a little bit because, yeah. you know, I do have a lot of, uh, you know, listeners who understand what you just said, but there are also yeah. some who wouldn't. Um, it also has to do with the, like you were talking about, you know, freedom, that this is technology that frees human beings, you mm -hmm. know, and I think people, because, you know, I mean, uh, Edward Bernays and the, you know, the you know, public relations and the mm -hmm. advertising all convinced us that our freedom was directly linked to our ability to be consumers, you mm -hmm. know, and I don't think people recognize that real freedom is the ability to produce everything or at least as much as possible for yourself. You know, to free yourself from the need to, you know, labor for anybody else to get some pieces of paper that allow you to live. You know, mm -hmm. you can instead be focusing your energy on learning how to, you know, um, basically produce for yourself. What I usually tell people, you know, is that for the price of the average college education, you could probably do a lot to just get yourself off the grid, utilizing yeah. technologies like the ones you're suggesting, and just get yourself, you know, completely self-sufficient. That's real freedom. It, mm -hmm taking the concepts of personal responsibility and applying them, you know, in a scientific sense, far beyond just the issue, well, I guess I'll just go be a scientist and work for some major corporation somewhere and, you know, mm -hmm. make lots of money and grants. But, you know, as opposed to that, you could be spending your time, your energy, you know, your mind on actually, you know, being able to, you know, produce for yourself and not need anybody else. It's like, you know, what I usually get from the, you know, the free market capitalists, they're, they're worried about, well, you're going to take our ability to trade away? And I just kind of look at them dot, 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 and I'm like, nobody said anything about taking away your, your, your rights to trade. It's, it's just trying to get beyond the need for it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, trying to get beyond the, the feasibility of it. It's, it's not that you have to not trade anymore, but if you have to trade with somebody else for something, that person has power over you. You're trying to free yourself from having to do that as much as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. that, that's an aspect of freedom, you know, and personal responsibility. I don't know that most people really. Get. Yeah. Yeah, I could uh, add to that a little bit because I, I went so far as to get a Ph.D. in physics. And my hope was, from as far as I could remember, is that, well, since my father's a scientist, I was looking at science as, as something that would do good for society. And it turned out the farther I went, in my education, the less useful and, and, and powerful or relevant I felt as far as making the world better. So we go so far thinking that, oh, you know, we, we end up getting plugged into this, this major industrial complex that provides this incredible existence for us. Well, when you start asking yourself some questions, you say, wow, there's a lot of different hidden costs and the meaning is going away. And uh, that's why at a certain point I said, I said to myself, I need real responsibility. I need to create the world around me. And where I was getting into was not doing that for me at all. And most people don't see that uh, there's an alternative or a choice that you have on the other side. It's, and it's largely the conditioning that we get in society that prevents us from seeing that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, and I think that, you know, people have kind of gotten hoodwinked into the notion that, you know, they're going to go to kindergarten, they're going to go to middle school, they're going to go to high school, they're going to go to college, they're going to get a career, and then they're going to work. And unfortunately, you know, you find out, I mean, I've got friends who 
former friends all the time who get out of college and they can't find a job in their field because it's been outsourced or it's been automated or, you know, and then they tell you to just get educated again. But, you know, one of the technological trends right now is to eliminate the need for people's work for you. You know, and that's basically the way things are. They, they have specialists who sit around finding ways to eliminate your job. You know, the day of mm-hmm. being able to just depend on, you know, going to work in a factory somewhere is, is it's going away. And I don't see that that's going to improve at all. And that's why I tell people it, it's not just a matter of a lifestyle choice in so much as it's kind of insurance for the future generations of your family because the economy is changing in such a way through technology that, you know, the people who used to depend on the labor class to do things for them are now finding ways to either you know, automated entirely, and the only people who can compete with automation are people who are so desperate that they'll take 50 cents an hour because it's better than starving to death. You don't want to be competing with people that will accept that much money. You know, that means that they're desperate. Well, what does that mean? It means the entire labor class is going to end up being just as desperate or unemployed. And that's why it's better that if you, you know, you want to invest in your future, invest in your ability to take care of yourself because the system's going to ebb and flow. And, you know, like you said earlier, funny money, you know, they're going to screw around with the economy and all that other garbage. You know, it, it's, you need to be get to the point where it doesn't matter anymore what the people mm-hmm. playing with monopoly money are doing. And mm-hmm. so that's, you know, I think that this is really, you know, the, the work that you're doing is very critical. And I would urge my listeners to seriously consider, you know, signing up to be a true fan or at least be willing to, you know, donate whatever you can. I mean, you know, he, true fan is only $10 a month. Most of you guys are playing video games that are more expensive than that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and it's also, you know, I had, first of all, some questions for the chat room, and then I had a caller who wants to be added. But um, the question yeah. for the chat room is, what does somebody have to do if they want to, you know, if they want to come help you? You know, do they just get a hold of you, show up, or what? Okay. The main thing we do here to, to absorb new people is called dedicated project visits, meaning a one-month visit where you have to actually write a proposal for what you're proposing to do. And, for example, for the near future, like we know we're going to be doing a lot of building in, the, in September and October. Well, a dedicated project visit could easily fit, okay, I'm going to be, be doing uh, my month helping out on the construction, learning CB, and putting this house together. But at other times, it's... Uh, depending on the projects that we're working or have the priorities here, you can work on some project that we're doing right now or propose something that's along the lines of the different 40 different technologies that we're working on or prioritizing and say, okay, I want to build this torch table or I want to uh, complete this tractor or whatever. Uh, something that's significant. Now, also, the technology is only one part, but other project visits that are possible, like, for example, um, well, doing work on communica- communicating our message, so that means documentation work or, or all the other types of either resource development or incubation of collaboration opportunities and um, just the other organizational aspects. You can propose a, a, a visit for that, a dedicated project visit on those topics. And the, the thing is, we want people who, who really, as you said, Neil, about responsibility and, and taking a very proactive stance in doing something better for the world. I mean, that's, if you can do that, you'd thrive here because that's just what we do. We're, we're kind of forgetting about our petty issues and saying, hey, these are some good things that are needed in society and that would help people 
and that's that's the nature of the mindset that has to be present in the people that are here. And maybe, hey, Will, maybe you can tell us about what your experience has been like. I was just going to ask him that. <laughs> visit. Yeah. Go ahead, Will. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm trying to think what angle I can address this from. Um, but I'd say one of the main differences I've, I've noticed from my previous life to kind of really stuffing in and focusing on creation 24-7 is that uh, it brings a lot of inner peace in the sense that the work that you advance and the work that you can, you can progress through here, seeing that it helps others as well as yourself really kind of it really brings an inner peace, which is something new to me. It feels like I've found myself. I mean, I mean it's just my experience. Um, but it's it's a great feeling to, to to kind of discover that, wow, there is hope in the world. You know, if I focus on what I can do as opposed to worrying about, oh, you know, I need to, I need to exit uh, amount of skills. I need certain certificates so I can apply for a job here. And, you know, hopefully someone else will accept me in this world. Uh, well, just flip that on, flip that the other way around, and okay, what can I produce for the world that's going to help me and everyone else? And with the internet these days, there's so much. I mean, I was just looking through uh, some of the websites that have helped me um, to kind of learn, because I'm, I, I guess, out of those five people that uh, we've been talking that Martin was talking about, I would kind of fall in line with the, the custom fabricator the most. That kind of seems to be the role that I think I would take on. And I mean, it's using simple open source tools, again, like Blender 3D CAD design for Linux, uh, just to design, uh, you know, to start off your designs is really intuitive. You can look at um, uh, lessons online and learn how to use, you know, 3D design, and before you know it, you're out building your own little ideas, kind of technical drawings as to what you might then then advance and take into the real world. And I use that with, uh, with the open source tracks that we're developing now. Um, you know, six months ago, I'd never been near any of these programs, but just looking at them, um, read the manual, it might take you six, seven, ten hours to read the manual, go through the exercises, tutorials online, uh, it's before you know it, you realize that, wow, actually, I can produce a lot more than I have realized. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be 32, 32 soon, and I'm looking at a potential of a, a huge shift in my you know, direction of where I thought my life was going, uh, working for the man, not really feeling like I fit in, unhappy, you know, to complete flip side. Where I'm, I'm learning new things every day. I'm, you know, it's like a mind-opening experience. Uh, and there's so many angles it can be taken down, so many routes you can follow. Um, there's so much information online. Just I'll put a, if I'm on the chat, like the, I don't know if you guys have heard of the Khan Academy. If you need math, you know, you don't need to go to university anymore. You can study, you can have a, a brilliant um, teacher teach you online for free uh, and, and so on. And so there's, there's so much out there, so much potential when you kind of look inwards and think about what is it I want to do? What is it I can do? As opposed to 
who can I work for, what kind of qualifications can I gain to fit into the current system that's growing smaller by the day. Now that, that actually points towards a uh, study that Daniel Pink, I don't know if you're familiar with him, uh, pointed to, was that he they did research, um, MIT did research actually to discover what motivates people because one of the things we always hear about is that, well, nobody's going to volunteer to do work like this. You know, you're out of your mind if you think that. And, you know, they did actual research, you know, and they found out that that's true of, like, hard labor. Like, hard labor, yes, they want money for that, but, like, for anything that requires your mind, you know, like development, things like that, you know, that it actually, it turned out that monetary gain was actually a very terrible motivator, and that the truth was that they found out that, you know, that there were many, you know, projects like Linux, for example, you know, that people did for free, knowing they were never going to get money, and it was actually the knowledge that they were helping people with their work that motivated them to do that work. And, mm -hmm, yeah. you know, I just, like, what you're talking about, like, you know, be able to sit at the end of the day and think to yourself, man, I just did something that, that means so much to the world. You know, that's real motivation. That's the kind of thing that I would sacrifice for. I mean, I do it already. You know, like, my radio show doesn't net me any profit. You know, it, they, they help me with some of my expenses, but I still get my satisfaction at the end of the day knowing that I spread awareness of, things like Marchand's work, you know, Jacques Fresco's work. That's actually one of the reasons why I, I smiled really broadly when you said that you discovered Martian through V-Radio, you know, because um, those are the kinds of connections that I, <laughs> that I want people to make, and that's kind of my contribution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's so, it yeah, is, that's, a, that's an amazing contribution. You know, and it's, it really is just trying to get people to think outside the box, and, you know, I kind of have the... My my vocabulary has always been pretty high, so but I've also you know lived with a lot of you know I've lived in a lot of bad neighborhoods, so I've had to learn how to communicate with people from you know, that are high on the intellectual scale and low on the intellectual scale in the same time. It allows me to translate some of these concepts because you know it's some of, you know it's like trying to get to you know you you end up using a lot of analogies and things like that to get through to people, and that's kind of what my contribution is, is to communicate. Um, but, you know, I, I'm really glad that you guys are doing this, and um, I'm actually pretty excited that, you know, when you, when you said that the, you fixed your, you finished your, your brick press. Now, didn't you uh -huh. guys say you were going full bore on the tractor next? Well, that's, that's the, the preparations we're doing in terms of the construction period. So full, full bore means that we're, we're still only at prototype number two, so we'd have to complete prototype three before we would hope to release it as a product. But yes, in, in a way we are, though, um, to tell you an insight, though, I was actually thinking of maybe taking a little sabbatical this winter, maybe for actually one to two months to write a serious proposal regarding this work because basically at this point we've done enough of our due diligence or kind of initial feasibility studies and experiments to, to know that this stuff is getting more and more real by the minute. So, so I was actually looking at writing up a comprehensive proposal to, to really try to explain and break this down to people and also get major support for it and through the crowds, crowd support, but, but a much more deep level of collaboration and support because right now it's like basically it's the core team here at Factory Farm that, you know, we're the, doing the design, the build work, uh, the sourcing and all that and uh, a lot of that can be done through a global collaboration method, and we're still trying to crack that nut. It's a really hard one to crack. Uh, it's really difficult to get people collaborating significantly on a project as broad as this, but we're looking 
uh, we're exploring that, and, and hopefully we can make some theoretical and practical progress on that over this winter. But yeah, short answer is the tractor is is our it, it will probably be our second product release. Yes. You know, I think it's it's important that people understand just how important and amazing this tractor design is because I remember you breaking down the math on one of your YouTube videos uh -huh. wherein you explained that in, you know, in order to do everything that this tractor does in kind of a, I'm going to forget the, the, the word, but basically it's a design wherein you could take parts off and put parts mm -hmm. back on very easily, you know, yep. things like that, you know. Yeah. Let me, yeah, let me comment on that because that actually is the most crazy thing. I mean, we have shown to date that you can basically create a life-size Lego set for real equipment. We've, we've got a tractor where you can take, for example, you can interchange the, the power unit. You can put on, say, two or three power units if you want more power. You can take off the wheel motors and use them, for example, on a lathe. Not only that, I mean, you've got all the interchangeability of implements. The auger that's on a tractor could be used for various things like digging holes, uh, serving as a honey extractor. Uh, we use that same universal motor on our lathe and drill press. So we're basically taking up motors, hydraulic cylinders, components, power units, everything you can think of and kind of interchanging them. And actually yesterday we came up with another little breakthrough on that. Um, I don't know if, who will appreciate that, but the control valves, the hydraulic levers that you use to control the tractor, well, we made them quick connect also so that if you have another application that requires a control valve, you unplug the quick connect from the tractor and put it on something else. Well, we just showed yesterday that we're on our way to doing that. So, yeah, it's just crazy in terms of the, the radical modularity and flexibility that's inherent to this tractor, and, and we haven't seen anything like that anywhere else so far. Modular, that was the question, that was the word I was yeah. looking for. I'm sorry, go ahead and finish your sentence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Super radical modular design that, that's, uh, it's, I mean, the, the main point to keep in mind about that is uh, because we can do that, instead of having to buy dedicated parts for each of your devices, you're able to have a whole ecology or ecosystem of components that you interchange, thereby reducing the price by a factor of, say, like 5 to 10 for the equivalent infrastructure that you would need. And just, I mean, just to give you another example, we used the tractor like yesterday, the other day we were punching holes with our open source 150 ton hole puncher <laughs> with which we're going to be able to punch out 1.5 inch holes in one inch thick metal. Well, we're just punching out some three quarter inch holes for some of the components for the tractor. Well, uh, the tractor powered that. We just connected it up through hoses to the tractor. So that's just another example that the tractor could be a universal power utility source and so forth, just just to throw that in. You know, that's, yeah, that's actually the, the great thing about the modular, you know, I mean, also because it's an open source product, if other people want to develop other parts that, you know, that go along with it, since you're setting it up to have the infrastructure already in the design, to allow people to easily create, you know, new modules for it, mm -hmm. you know, then that just makes it so much easier to work on. Now, one of the things that you said that really rings in my head because we talk about planned obsolescence and concerns mm -hmm. of capital all the time was when you pointed out that the reason you built the tractor was because the tractor you had previously kept breaking down. Um, exactly. So you, you want to tell the, a little bit of the story about, you know, like what you went through with that other tractor that made you make this decision? Yeah. 
Yeah, let me let me recap that story. We we bought a tractor off the shelf, and the turn we we had the transmission get, fall out of it and basically break. So we took it to the repairman, and and we ended up getting charged two thousand bucks. Well, thirty days from that time, the thing broke again, and I said, man, I am done with this nonsense, and I'm going to take charge of my technology here. So that was actually the motivator for for building the open source tractor, where everything is replaceable that the worst thing that can happen is the replacement of a wheel motor, which will cost you uh, $250, you know. So that's, that's the reason. So right now, that old tractor, well, we've scavenged a couple of parts from it, like actually, uh, not too much, well, but we scavenged the front-end loader from one of the tractors. But it's really resting in our junk heap, so we can then melt it down with our induction furnace as soon as we get that online, and we're going to build new tractors from it or whatever else. <laughs> that's, what, that's what's going on. That is so yeah. great. You know, um, and it, that's, that's insane. Yeah, it is. And that's, you know, <laughs> when you think about it, you basically just freed yourself from the, the repairman. It's like one of the things that we talk about all the time, for example, because I had a, an expert on electric cars on my show a while ago, was he pointed out that he's had the same electric car for seven years, and the only mm -hmm. thing he's ever had to do to it is change the tires. And, mm -hmm. you know, he pointed, you know, there's so many problems with internal combustion engines. We design things, like you said, mm -hmm. with capital in mind. We, they want you to be enslaved, essentially, to their repairmen, their mechanics. They want you to have to bring it to their dealerships. They design it so that all these parts, you know, are just not very well designed, whereas with the open source model that you have, you have access to everything. If you find a better mm -hmm. solution, then you just put it in there. You don't have to go to some guy. And, you know, that's, the thing, that's, what I think people don't understand is that, you know, as we started a little bit earlier, the real freedom is in having this knowledge so that you can do this stuff yourself, you know, so that you're not yeah. reliant on trading or bartering with other people who have that knowledge. You should have this knowledge. If these things are critical, yeah. you be able to survive. That's, yeah. that's total freedom. Yeah, I, I should add a little bit of my psychology on it. It's like right now we're still totally dependent on some things, like we have to go to the auto parts store uh, for example, the engine on the life track is still just a regular diesel engine. So, so we're going to end up replacing that with a modern steam engine running on our own pelletized biomass as soon as we get that. But in the meantime, I can tell you, it's like the parts are expensive. I just psychologically, it wears on me to have to go into that store. I know the money I'm paying in there is just going right out of the community to, the, to, to wherever, whoever's producing that centrally. You know, we're not helping our community. We're just, you know, pissing money away, just leaking out right out of community, right out of the community. So, so I mean, I'm kind of sensitive to that, and that's why that's, that's some of the motivations behind wanting to go local is that you retain wealth. You create it. You keep it here. You, you nurture your people, and, and that's what's missing right now if we, if we do our poor choices of technology. So, so the technology connects very deeply to our, our human spirit. I agree with you, and it's, I think that the, the local economy thing is a very important part of this that I don't think people generally recognize. There's a reason that mm -hmm. I usually go to a mom-and-pop place for my pizza rather than go into some corporate place, you know, things like that. It's also just because, you know, uh, these, you ever notice it almost seems like the infrastructure is being designed in such a way to take as much power from you as possible you know, make you dependent on one thing or another. I, I talk about this all the time is that the average person, for example, you know, I usually compare them to like Little House on the Prairie back when, you know, people knew how to take care of themselves very primitively. But, you know, 
you'd go to the general store maybe once a month. You know, it wasn't like you needed to go to the store every day. Nowadays, people have no idea how to take care of themselves at all. They are totally dependent on, you know, shopping malls. And, you know, it's like I remember the, the joke I usually say on B-Radio is like, you know, if aliens ever came and just took all of our supermarkets and malls, there are so many people who would die, even though the resources to make new stuff is all sitting right there because they'd have mm-hmm. no idea what to do with it. And you know, right. when people talk about taking away your sovereignty or, you know, any number of other, you know, little conspiracy theories that people come up with, you know, with, you know, about, you know, the elite trying to rule the world. I, I say to them, I'm like, you know, you can empower yourself to, to be totally immune to all of this if you focus your efforts on finding ways to be self-sustaining and you can also do it in such a way that it's environmentally sound. You know, that's, and they, people are just kind of flabbergasted by the notion. And we put out more and more people out of our educational structures and systems to be totally dependent on the system itself. And, you know, that's, I think, the, if you want to be worried about your freedom, it really comes back to how you take care of yourself. One of the things that Jacques Fresco talks about is he says, you know, you think you're free, but if you have a job, every time you punch that clock, you walk into a dictatorship. You know, you're totally, you know, totally dependent on your boss's goodwill, whereas you could be your own boss, and not in the sense of being dependent on creating a product that other people need. You could become your own boss by creating a product that you need and focusing your mm-hmm. efforts on that. You know, and then you sell your extra. I mean, like I remember you talking about, for example, you guys were experimenting with farming for a while, and you, mm-hmm. did, was it a hydroponic system you guys made? Yeah, yeah. So we we did some hydroponic lettuce, and we had plenty for ourselves. Uh, that was an experiment that you know we found out through that actually that hydroponics are not a low maintenance thing. So we we ended up quitting that. But yeah. But you did make a lot of lettuce, and I remember seeing the pictures. Yeah. Of it, and it looked so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the concept stands that you can. You can focus or design your production in a totally opposite way of what, how people do it today. Today they say, well, how can I you know, push the most of it out into the market? They don't ask, how much of it can I produce so that I can meet all my needs? Uh, because that would require you know, much more of an integrated production line. But we're proposing that, hey, let's start asking ourselves, what would happen if we just produced... Uh, just had so much productive capacity locally, even on a, well, I mean, in a, we're talking about communities like uh, a number of families getting together, sm- small communities from like 10 to 200 people or so. But instead of talking about how do we sell it to Walmart, let's talk about how do we meet the needs of our community. And then the extra, which we will have by all means, because we're going to be effective in production, we can trade that if we want to. But once again, we don't have to. We're not forced to become dependent. We have the luxury of trading for the exotic things that we can't make ourselves, like like tea or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's actually a really important aspect of this is that you don't have to trade. But if you want to, you can. You know, right, right. And that will allow you to get a hold of some stuff, like you said, tea, you know, or maybe some of those <laughs> unnecessary things like teddy bears, <laughs> uh-huh. you know. Um, yeah. And that, that's why I would say that, uh, you know, I hope that more people, I mean, you said that you've been getting a slow and steady trickle out of B-Radio listeners that have been heading yeah. your way. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I know we've got your uh, 
you know, your your article coming up for the newsletter soon, and I'm I'm looking forward uh-huh. to seeing what kind of traffic that gets you guys. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, that's good. Well, you know, is after you guys are done with the tractor, have you given any thought to what's coming next? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the steam engine infrastructure, the, simply because right now we're t- still totally dependent on the on the fuels and on the engines, which are not cheap. I mean, a new a new diesel engine for, to replace the same one that we have is about five thousand dollars. So that's that's pretty high. We could build um build our own at a cost of about uh, about three hundred dollars in parts plus our skill, and and that's in the form of a of a steam engine, a modern steam engine. So um, the exotic promise there being that you can use regular haying equipment to pelletize biomass and run run the steam engine. So that's a big one. And beyond that, we still haven't built our open source lathe, which would be required to build the steam engine. So we're kind of making our way towards becoming autonomous on our power, fuel, energy, and power units that we can actually build in-house. Now, the holy grail for really reducing the cost by going to, to our, basically to scrap resources to melt metal, well, that's the induction furnace part. That's a little longer-term project, perhaps, but that's that's very high on our priority list, priority list, simply because it allows us to produce all the metals that we're going to use to build our tractors and compressed earth brick presses and steam engines and and energy systems and so forth. So that's also a big priority. Um, but I mean, we kind of take it day by day. It's literally what resources are we going to have to to do the things that we need, like, for example, right now, not to be pumping the funding baskets, but right now we're crowd crowd fund fundraising to still build the CD press and the soil pulverizer that we're going to use in our building adventures. We haven't filled those baskets, so we still got to do that. So sometimes we're limited by the cash. I mean, basically, well, not sometimes, always. We had... Right now, our budgets are only still between 1500 and 3000 per month. Uh, we could handle four times that much very easily uh, in terms of getting production or getting the results that come out of here to just increase at that rate. Now, when we saw Will come here, since he's a, a custom fabricator and designer and graduating to all kinds of functions here, uh, our progress has has pretty much doubled. So that's that's where the resources and other people and dedicated project visits that then evolved to 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 longer term visits where we're the actual pioneers that are testing this on ourselves. Can can we really get to this this promised land of unprecedented quality of life? That's I mean we're asking for people like that to come here and help us. So the answer to the question of what's next, it's like, yeah, we, we can talk about all these things that are next, but we really need the people to help out and help scale this. That's the part that we can't, can't forget when we talk about that. Yeah. Now, are there um, any kind of specific experts maybe that you're looking for right now? Anybody with you know, any specific skills that yeah. you guys could use? 
Definitely. I mean, as far as the people who can be extremely useful right now as people who are custom fabricators, skilled people, just general workshops, uh, workshop like welder, torch, drill press, stuff like that. Uh, if we if we could find or recruit more people like that, we can get into some serious production of the CEB press. Um, we have been very lax on marketing that simply because we're like getting ready to build for the winter here. But if we had another person, we could perhaps dedicate a person to pull in, like market the thing and pull in like 10000 a month by doing that. I mean, we can do that. We just don't have the people to do it right now. Well, as far as specific other skills, uh, power electronics. How about someone to design the power electronics for the induction furnace? It's a big one. Power electronics apply to a lot of different things. So those are a couple of things. The other part is the open source agroecologist, the person, the permaculturist who also uses open source equipment and really gets this operation here food sufficient. I mean, we've been neglecting that. We've got an orchard of like 300 trees or so, but that's been getting neglected. As far as the garden, that's kind of neglected. We've got some tomatoes and other things, but we should be feeding ourselves here to demonstrate what we're talking about, but we're not. Right now we're not, and we really need a person to do the agriculture. We just, I mean, since we've been involved in the workshop so much, we just kind of let them go by the wayside. So, so agriculture, fabricators, power electronics. Our oh, maybe, priorities. Uh, if I can get Douglas uh, Millette working with you guys, he works on the, uh -huh. the bay doors of the space shuttle. I imagine he uh -huh. can help you with your electronics. <laughs> uh, yeah, depends. I mean, the, see, the, the trouble is that, that typically now people are so specialized that unless he's a power electronics specialist, he, he might not have a clue about that part. It just depends. But we find that one of the major challenges is that people are so specialized in their educations that a lot of times it is difficult to, to find a person to take on a project seriously because typically they're able to do only a part of it and typically our education is just too, simply too narrow. So that's, that's definitely a challenge that we have. Yes, you know, and I think that what we're looking at here now, you guys are talking about, you know, branching out and some of these other aspects. I'm actually really interested in you know, learning how to get the permaculture going and all that. Now, you mm -hmm. said that hydroponics were proved to be, I mean, do you think that it's, it's just that, you know, it's something you want to work on later or have you totally discarded well, it or have you found something better? Yeah, we've, I think the, the way for us to go is organotonics, which means instead of growing the plants in water where you have them chemicals or natural solutions fertilizing that, that's a very sensitive system because once your water or, you know, something gets contaminated or you get a, a pest in a greenhouse, that can wipe out your crop. Like, for example, with the lettuce, we had the most amazing lettuce. You know, I went down to the market, sold out 100 bucks worth in like an hour. Then I tried it again, and the crop totally failed due to thrips, a, a pest. So it's, it's just challenging. So what I would suggest actually these days is go outside because it's a natural environment which makes it much harder for the bugs and use organoponics. The stuff they use in Cuba, supposedly the most sustainable country in the world, they, they grow a lot of their stuff in, in compost. That's what organoponics means. Instead of the water solution, you're using a compost which has all the nutrients and moisture retention properties and allows the plants to grow extremely robustly, but it's still more natural, more balanced, and less susceptible to failure. So that's, that's what we would promote over that. Now, can and that be course, done? I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's not to forget. I mean, you still have to discuss how do you get your staple crops. Mm -hmm. For us, our long-term solution is 
perhaps hazelnuts and chestnuts, which have the protein and starch equivalents of corn and soybeans on a permacultural basis. But then uh, what about the annual field crops? Say you want to grow wheat or whatever. For that, that's just plain, plain field agriculture with a tractor. You don't put that inside a greenhouse in hydroponics. It just doesn't make sense because you need so much area to do that. So, I mean, there's, a, there's the part where the hydroponics, yeah, if you want to do it, you can still do it. But um, the challenge is if you're going to scale up to production levels, it just becomes really susceptible to damage by insects. So you're going to be really hard-pressed to find a mega production plant of organic hydroponic lettuce, for example. It's, like, almost impossible. I see. Well, yeah, that's, yeah. You know, that's something we definitely have to work on. I know, like, Douglas, for example, is trying to – he's working on a design right now for a uh, – he wants to create an automated hydroponic farm, and his, mm-hmm. his benefits for hydroponics is that it's not dependent on weather. Um, he, although yeah. he wants to make his – like, he was actually talking about creating, like, an underground facility to help keep stuff out of it. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, I imagine yeah, – I see where you're coming from there. I was just curious. I mean, it's like you notice yeah. now – there's all these little stores popping up with hydroponic uh, technologies. Like, you know, that's the right. point of the store. I don't know if you guys get them where you are, but here in Michigan, mm-hmm. we're everywhere. Um, yeah. People who just sell that stuff all day, so you can yeah. have stuff in your house. But that's, my, my advice would be, I don't know, I guess, bluntly speaking, hold on to your wallet before you find out a little more about what agriculture is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. But I would say that hydroponics on a small scale where you've got just an incredibly diverse culture of different things where you have a lot of, you know, just, uh, what, what do you say, guilds or, or companion plantings and make it as diverse as possible to, to prevent the, like a single pest from wiping out the whole thing. And there are things you can do to do, to do that. And, and I think that is perhaps one of the states of the art in, in terms of open sourcing hydroponics. It's like, yeah, provide a robust design of a very a polycult, of a totally polycultural system that actually works and that you can replicate, that you can keep doing without wiping that out by pests or other things. So that, yeah, it could, it could, but it's, I can tell you it's not easy. So for now, until we get that technology, just plant the garden outside. <laughs> That's, that's what we do. Yep, that's, you know, um, this has been an awesome show, March, and I've been very glad to have you guys back mm-hmm. on. And, you know, uh, it's, I look forward to doing this in the future. If you ever have anything else, if you want to yeah. do updates or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah that would be good. I mean, especially after the building adventures are done, we can probably report on some extremely robust, low-cost, high-quality housing. That's, that's our goal for the year. So we'd probably like to report on that in the near future. Now, um, is there anything else that you guys wanted to bring up as far as what you've been working on lately, or what you're, you know, what, where you're looking to go next? William, anything? Um, anything else to say? Actually, I had, a, I, had a, I had a question, kind of off topic, but still on the open source topic, go which ahead. is what happened to? I remember seeing uh, a while back a documentary of Jack uh, Fresco and his 32-bit car. Uh, he had a car made out of 32 parts that he talked about that didn't take off because the market, people in the market weren't interested in it for whatever reasons. And it just made me think as well because uh, about two weeks ago, I was in Costa Rica and I took a ride in a taxi 
and the guy was like, wow, you're on my first fare this month. You know, it was in a, because it's, the tourism is so, it's set up so well out there. They have big buses. Everybody goes by bus. I missed the bus. I took a taxi. Speaking to this guy, uh, yeah, he, he says, you're my first fare this month. And I asked him, wow, well, how do you survive? And he says, well, just about. It's very, life is very hard. Uh, and I said, well, what happens if your car breaks down? And he says, well, it did once, and I kind of learned to repair it myself. And so it got me thinking to, to in the open source automobile direction, um, and how feasible would it be to open source a car? Uh, and I wondered if Jack's designs would, if, he's, if he shares his designs in, a, in, in, in that direction. I don't know if you know. Uh, you know, um, I talked to him sometimes about his previous designs, and he had so many things that ended up being grabbed and uh, patented yeah. and then taken from him. I don't yeah. know that Jock is even aware of open source licensing. I'm, I've never talked yeah. to him. I've mentioned it to him a little bit, but he was really busy at the time. So yeah. I'm hoping that in the future we can see some of his designs you know, in that phase. He did do a lot of inventions. But he kept running into walls where he couldn't get funding, you know, and like, for example, he was working on a, a 3D television screen was one of his projects. And, you know, he went through different phases of it. And, for example, the idea that they gave him was, you know, we need you to make a 3D projection that doesn't, you know, require glasses. And um, he still has that design. He just sits on it because, you know, the, the company came to him and they were only interested if, you know, like, you know, of course, the design had a couple of flaws because, you know, the picture would fade out if you weren't straight on with the TV, and it would fade out if you were a little bit too far away. And he's like, well, yeah, I recognize there are problems. I think if I get into the, you know, more funding for the next phase, then I can help you. And, you know, they, of course, said, well, when you fix those two things, come and call us. He's like, that's what I was just trying to tell you. I need more money to do that. But they didn't want to hear him. Yeah, as far as his designs for things like the cars, I could talk to him about it, but um, he's been so paranoid about giving out his designs for the reasons we gave previously. Once he, I, yeah. I think if somebody ever really explains to him what open mm -hmm. source licensing is and how we can protect his inventions so that they don't yeah. end up, that's, you know, that's another thing. He, he did things, for example, when during World War II to fix certain problems with airplanes, and then they ended up patenting that and throwing it into weapons, and he really, yeah. really hates it. <laughs> this technology gets used for weaponry. So... Um, Actually, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's the point, much. We haven't really talked about patenting. I mean, it's not it's not really a threat, is it? In the sense that I don't see it as a huge threat, simply because by the documentation that we do, it's uh, it, that makes it open source and unpatentable. And the other thing being that we're not really inventing a lot of new stuff, and all of our stuff is really repatch repackaging known technology into more useful and user friendly forms. So the patent issue. I don't think it's going to come up too much. It might for something, but I mean, I, I, of course, my clarity on that is, of course, release that to the open and publish as, as far and wide as possible. Yeah. I guess that's, you know, that is an aspect that I have spoken to him about in the past. There's just, like I said, it's, as far as having a long-standing conversation about it, the opportunity has not yet presented itself. Um, mm -hmm. I imagine, I mean, he's getting on in the years, you know, that he's going to want to find a way to leave those designs behind. And I think if I could ever kind of pin him down and explain to him what you guys do, I mean, obviously I'd need to have an expert on hand, like somebody like you guys, to explain how that works, because I don't even understand fully. I just know that you can protect yourself from being mm -hmm. patented. Um, and, in, you know, if you give it away enough, it doesn't matter if they patent it, because now everybody can just go do it themselves. 
you know. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's just he ran into so many situations where he really just, it's not even that he was upset that people were taking it from him. It was that they would then go and turn and make, you know, once they patented it, then they would market it, and then they would force people to pay money uh, yeah. for things that he's trying to give away. You know, and that's, right. like yeah, I yeah, said, yeah. back when he was an inventor, open source didn't exist. People would just run yeah. off and take sure. ideas. So, like, you know, I'm hoping that over, you know, over time we'll be able to get into a lot of that. But a lot of the stuff that Jacques does is also kind of like the, the first phase where you're making the drawing, you know, and then you tell the engineers, this is the concept, this is how it would work. You know, the basic idea is there, and then you hand it over to the technicians, and then they make it materialize, is what a lot of his work was. Um, yeah. You know, and it, a lot of it is also what he's trying to contribute is the approach, you know, like you guys did with your tractor. You designed it modular in the first place. You know, everything yeah. designs is easy to take apart from the very beginning. You know, it's, it's kind of a, a method of thinking, really, you know, in your design that you would think is common sense. And when he says it, it, it rings in your head, and you're like, wow, that makes perfect sense. Why didn't I think of that? That's because... You've been conditioned to think as an engineer that everything needs to be designed with, you know, making money in mind rather than making it efficient. And that's why, you know, he said that he's, he's worked with engineers in the past, and a lot of them come out of the school, and they're so set in their ways, and it's hard to talk to them. You know, but, and you try to teach them a different way of approaching, well, everything, you know. Um, and he has had an impact on certain other people. Like I had uh, Mitchell Joachim on one of my shows, and his solution, for example, was kind of outside the box. He's like, well, rather than, you know, designing cars out of materials that are so easy to kill people with, why don't we design cars out of softer materials so that they don't, you know, impact each other? You know, that's an example of kind of a, a different way of looking at things that, that Jacques tries to get people to, to think along the lines of. Like, you know, yeah. if you've got school crosswalk and you get kids getting hit by cars, then why don't you just put the walkway you know, I mean, they're doing this in some places on a bridge that goes over it so that the car is not even an issue anymore. There's so many things that designers don't put into what they're doing. In some cases, I think it's accidental. In some cases, I think it's just outright, you know, intentional. They're doing things to create problems so that they can make money from solving the problems that they created in the first place. And yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest things that, you know, it's like you said yourself, Martin, when you were, you know, you were going into be a PhD in physics, and I actually tell people about this sometimes on my show, and, you, you know, you wanted to do fusion, you wanted to help save the world, and you learned mm -hmm. that fusion was just kind of this thing, like a carrot on a stick that's, you know, dangled in front of the jackass, the donkey, to try to get it, <laughs> chase it down, and it's never going to happen. You know, I've talked to engineers in the auto industry, and they tell me that um, hydrogen cars are basically the same way. It's always going to be 10 years away, and we're forever following it. And by the time they do implement it, they'll have found a way to make money on it, yeah. as opposed to just using the electric motor that already works very well. Mm -hmm. You know, and the battery patents weren't owned by companies like Texaco, who obviously have no vested interest whatsoever in the success of electric cars, than we would have them right now. Now, mind you... Yeah. There are people who are starting to break that down. You know, I'd be really interested to see, like you said, you know, open source automobiles. If we could get into that market, man, you know, start making electric cars. People are already starting mm -hmm. to do it. Like you can buy kits to change most cars electric. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that yeah. would be a great but thing. The, yeah. The, the the chassis is, I think, one of the one of the critical parts because at the moment, uh, power system aside, whether you use electronics, internal combustion steam or whatever you may use just to open short a source a basic chassis 
with, mm-hmm. in which you can place the motor would be a, a huge advance in, you know, it would, it, it would free up so many people from the problem of having to take their car to be serviced because it's had minor body damage or, you know, the suspension has gone or, or the mm-hmm. brakes are something like this, um, something along those lines. Uh, Absolutely. That would be a project that can gain huge support from a lot of stakeholders. So we should throw that into our midwinter proposal writing during our sabbatical. <laughs> yeah. You know what's going to happen? No, that's, you know yeah, you guys I mean. try to go on sabbatical, you're just going to you're going to get some crazy idea and you're going to run right back into the shop and it's going to be all <laughs> There you go. You can't yeah, escape this. It's in always your- a danger of that. <laughs> now, okay, I do have a further comment. Talk to me about collaboration. How do we work together with Venus, Zeitgeist, or who else should, be, should we be connected to or talking to, like you mentioned, the Community Planet Foundation? You know, and I, I tell just about everybody about you guys every time I talk to them. And um, I think that uh, I'm already looking into, for example, I've spoken to Peter about the possibility of you being able to do a uh, presentation in a future Z-Day you know, when we have that. Mm-hmm big presentation for everybody to get things started. Um, mm-hmm. You getting into the newsletter is going to get you guys out there a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Generally, I think what it is is this, is what we tell people. Is that guys movement, at least at this stage, is an educational movement to try to get people thinking about the stuff you guys are physically doing. Um, and that's just the phase that we're in at the moment. In the meantime, there's no reason that members of the Zeitgeist movement cannot help you by mm-hmm. And I, I believe you, you had connection with the local chapter for a while, didn't you? How did that go? Yeah, yeah, that kind of petered out. Haven't, um, haven't heard anything. Not sure where that project is right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, yep. but you know, it's it's stuff like that. It's there's no reason why they can't. And yes, I will definitely get you in touch with Mr. Reed. He's more interested on um, on a social level. You know, that's kind of his thing is trying to get people to have the right attitude. He talks about consensus decision-making tactics and, you know, having the right social chemistry, so to speak, to, to facilitate productive, you know, thinking and working. Um, and he also talks a lot about how you can make work enjoyable and, you know, how you can have it to the point. I've, and I know what he's talking about because even, like, in some of the dead-end jobs that I've worked in, like in restaurants and stuff, if your manager has the right attitude, then you don't mind working there as much. I've even had situations where I didn't want to go home right away because I was having so much fun with my coworkers. That's the kind of stuff that he's talking about. We were all productive. We weren't screwing mm-hmm. up. We were still working. But there's something to be said for the attitude, you know, in the environment, you know, um, that will help you, you know, allow you to just be more motivated because – there was a time, for example, when I worked for one person, she was a really nice lady, and I was motivated because I didn't want to let her down. It wasn't because I was scared she was going to yell at me. You know, these are the kinds of things that Jack talks about, you know, Jack Reed in Community Planet. He talks about finding ways to, you know, kind of motivate people to work together, you know. Um, and I, I'm also kind of, my personal project right now is to try to help people from the libertarian groups and the anarchist groups, like I was just talking, actually, one of my listeners is an anarcho-syndicalist, and they believe in kind of like cooperative ownership of the means of production, and, you know, that you just, when you need something, you just go to the the community-owned production facility, and then you make it, and I was like, Mm -hmm. well, here you go, this is, this is a guy who wants to sell you a kit for your own anarcho-syndicalist, you know, syndicalistic society, have at it. 
you know, mm-hmm. stop talking about it and go do it. You know, that's, and that, that's basically it. I mean, as far as, like, collaboration on the higher levels, you know, it is my hope eventually to get that all started. The only reason that things are kind of stalled on that end is because Jock and Roxanne are off on their um, tour, and Peter's really hard working on his movie right now. He's trapped mm-hmm. around a lot to get a lot of different kinds of experts. It is my hope that he might at some point be able to visit you guys and to look mm-hmm. at work and add it to Zeitgeist 3. If it doesn't end up in Zeitgeist 3, I'm going to try to hopefully get you guys in a different Zeitgeist film so people can, you know, on a wide scale, can hear about what it is that you guys are doing because the films still get far more views than anything else, you know, even by mm-hmm. people who, of course, are against it. But it's one of the things that Peter's trying to do now you know, against it, I know, it's kind of silly. One of the things he's trying to do now is we're gathering experts so that when the time comes, they can't continue to say, well, you're just some filmmaker on the Internet. You know, he's going to people who have real practical knowledge of these technologies and bringing them together to say, look, this actually is not only possible, it's kind of a a really good idea because if you don't, we're going to kill ourselves. It's good stuff that they're trying to bring up, you know. Um, Yeah. And I, I could pipe in. I could say, I mean, if he needs some honest technical review of the options, I mean, I'm, I could be a really good resource for him, so you can pump that onto him if you can. Well, what I would like to do then when we get off the air, actually, I'd like to have a phone number for you because one of my problems is, like, when I try to contact you, unless you happen to be on Skype or happen to be answering your email, I won't, I won't mm-hmm. hear from you for, you know, sometimes days. And I know that you're busy, but that way when something like that does come up or maybe I can, you know, set up a conversation, we can make sure it actually happens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Um, okay, yeah, definitely. Here's a, here's just another thing. What what is really useful at this point for us is is being invited to different presentations. Like for example, the economy in a box presentation. We got invited to San Francisco, thanks to the Bay Area Community Exchange. But those kinds of things are really useful. Like, to give you an example, there was only 30 people in the audience. Uh, we, we ended up getting five true fans subscriptions from the, the audience because that's a really nice forum where people can really get to grasp onto the message that we're proposing. And actually, for the first time, I felt like people were really believing this, like a realistic option, that the tools are in place, and we've done enough background work to, to motivate it. But that's so I would actually make a call out to anybody in the audience if you can invite us for a con, for a talk or some presentation if you can simply cover our travel costs we'd love to be there so anyone out there that's listening today you can uh, you can organize it that would be great you know uh Douglas just went to a sustainability conference in Sweden um and mm-hmm. did a presentation about you know resource based economy stuff and Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe with some luck we'll be able to do that. Um, and that's kind of my hope, really. I mean, it's you guys understand the direction. You obviously understand the term resource-based economy. You use it during some of your own presentations. And uh, I, I would like to get everybody's heads together on this because it, it, you know, there are some, like I said earlier, there are a lot of people in the Zeitgeist movement who they're not necessarily talkers. They're, they're people who want to work with their hands. They want to get dirty. They want to go, you know, go to it. And I'm trying to tell them, I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, well, you know, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no reason you can't continue to be a member of the Zeitgeist Movement and go to open source, you know, ecology or go to, you know, um, Community Planet. It, you know, because you, you guys are in line with what we're doing. And that's why, you know, I tell them, I'm like, you know, get a hold of this guy. He knows what he's doing. He's a Ph.D. in physics. He's, you know, dedicated his life to 
creating the kinds of technologies that we're going to need because there are, there are questions to be answered. People ask all the time, what are we going to do during the transition between a regular economy and an open source, well, not open source, I got that on the brain, a resource-based economy, which is essentially open source, obviously, um, you know, and I tell them, I'm like, well, you know, some of those questions are left unanswered because we need to develop the technologies in question so that we can tell you what it is that you'll do. I don't see, you know, for example, like, you know, having a global village construction set is an excellent example of what we could do during the transition between, you know, being enslaved to money to not needing money anymore at all. And, you know, the, the free time that you could have, especially when you introduce automation into the systems eventually, mm -hmm. you know, um, then you could be just spending all of your time developing more technologies and more technologies rather than having to worry about anything. You know, that's the whole plan of the high, you know, the idea of automating your farming as much as feasible, automating your energy, automating your construction as much as possible, then it leaves you with all the free time you need to develop technologies to further enhance your quality of life. And that's why, I, you know, and I saw this immediately. It's like when I, because sometimes I do a video show on Zeitgeist TV. It's like a, my own Justin TV channel. And uh, just because one day I had run out of stuff to show everybody, I started playing you guys' YouTube videos, and everybody was really into it. You know, mm -hmm. um, that is one other aspect of the Zeitgeist movement that is beneficial, which is the reasons why we're in the educational phase, is that it is the fact that anybody has introduced this idea to me that has made me into a techno-fetishist to the point where I actually care about this stuff. You know, before mm -hmm. Zeitgeist to Denim, I was playing video games and wasting my life on stupid pursuits. It wasn't until that that I started to get interested. I kind of got scared out of technology at a young age because I have problems with mathematics. I have a learning disability. And I, um, I was really interested in robotics. That was something I really wanted to do. And, you know, I've talked to robotics engineers since then. He's like, you honestly think I just sit around on a piece of paper and do, you know, <laughs> it's like that's what calculators are for. You know, he's like, and if you mm -hmm. can't do it, there's usually people in your team who can help you, you know, but overall, that, you know, a lot of it is just creativity and understanding mm -hmm. what components are good for what, and then you just design it. And then, you know, he's like, if you need help with math, that's what, you know, we have computers that help with that. And I, I kick myself now because I, like I said, I got myself talked out of becoming a robotics engineer, you know, um, and nowadays, for example, it's something that I've looked back at. I've also gotten a huge interest in alternative energy and all came about by the efforts you know, of the Zeitgeist movement. So that's kind of where we're at is that, you know, we're kind of trying to get people interested, get people think along this line. And that's mm -hmm. going to put them in a direction where they're going to think, hey, open source ecology is cool. You know, how many people coming out of the American Idol World of Warcraft culture would have even taken a look at what you guys are doing? You know, now because of the Zeitgeist movement, there is a, you know, as a you know, ever-growing larger pool of people who think that this stuff is, is part of their life. It's cool to them now. It has an appeal. They see the value, you know, and, it, and we have a culture that makes science look terrible. You know, I always talk about this. It's like our, our schools don't do enough, for example, to deal with one of the things that I think is the most counterproductive problem in education is that smart kids are getting picked on in school. I remember actually mm -hmm. distinctly getting attacked once because I used the word derivative. You know, just the dumbest yeah. thing. You know, they, they, they beat you before. And the teachers don't do anywhere near enough to solve these problems. You know, that's one of the mm -hmm. things I remember when the, the Columbine shooting happened. I don't advocate kids shooting other kids, but the first thing that went through my head was not, did those kids play Mortal Kombat? It was, did those kids get picked on by other kids for being smarter than them? You know, that's because mm -hmm. I remember that. And I grew up in some pretty rough neighborhoods. So, you know, if, if they didn't think that I was using big words, it didn't just mean that I got shoved. It meant that I got beaten up. 
you know, <laughs> four or five guys at a time, you know, just because you're smarter than them. And that's so silly, you know, that we allow that to happen. It's so backwards. You know, Jack Fresco went through the same thing. He was so much with the other kids around him that it, it just, it, you know, he went through hell. You know? Yeah. And it shouldn't be like that. You know, we put so much effort, you know, into our sports programs and, you know, and science fairs are kind of faded. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, it's like there's so little effort into actually developing ourselves as human beings. You know, instead yeah. we kind of jump around in circles, mimicking our old tribal animal days, chasing a yeah. in with air in it across the field. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what we put our that's what we put our effort into. And, yeah. Uh, well, know, we've got a we've got a good word for that kind of activity at Factory Farm. We we call those people Mexican crabs. I don't know if you know the Mex- what the Mexican crab is, but it, these things are in these tide pools. There's like hundreds of these crabs in a little tide pool, and whenever one tries to jump out, come out, maybe you know to move on to a different life or something, the, the rest of the crabs pull it back down. That's that's kind of what we're talking about. So when you try to try to uh, kind of jump out of the norm, you're, you get pulled down by the by the masses, and that's that's a clear phenomenon that occurs in society. So it's the Mexican crab phenomenon. <laughs> I see what you mean. And that's, you know, that's the, the biggest insult to freedom ever. You know, they, they want you to be dumb because they don't want you to be thinking about, you know, why am I driving this car? Why don't I make an electric car? You know, why am I paying this electric bill? Why don't I get solar panels? You know, I mean, it's like mm-hmm. there was a company that quoted me. It would only be like $18,000 to get my house completely off the grid with a solar array. Um you know, and mind you, my electric yeah. company, my electric bill is high for some reason. I need an engineer to look at it. I don't know what the deal is, but I, I put out way more electricity than I really should. But, but $18,000 to never pay an electric bill again is not that bad. And that's still a private company coming out and doing it. There are people learning how to do it themselves. You know, geothermal mm-hmm. heating and cooling is taking off. Um, I watched a – that's another thing. You guys ought to try to get on big ideas for a small planet if you haven't already on the Sundance channel, you should look into that show because they're looking for people like you guys all the time. Um, okay, well, help us get on there. I'll do my best. I don't have any connections there. I've had a few people on my show who were from there, uh, like a guy who could teach you how to convert your diesel engine to uh, run on vegetable oil. I had him on my show. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and that actually might be a viable thing for you guys because it's like they give yeah, it away. <laughs> yeah, we, we've done that. And uh, broke a couple of diesel engines doing that. <laughs> yeah, he says you have to be careful. There's a certain way to do it. You can't just throw, right. can't just throw oil in there. Um, yeah, we yeah. went to biodiesel in our case, actually, which actually works quite well. Good, good. You know, and so basically, it's you know, I'd be happy to try to get you guys on there. It's going to take more than me, though. You know, maybe I can get a you know a pool of listeners to bother them until they come talk to you, but. They've talked to some pretty off-the-wall people. I can't imagine why they wouldn't also talk to you guys. It's pretty evident when you watch some of the episodes of that show that it's like, how did this guy get on here? You know, he makes clothing out of you know recycled audio cassette tapes. I'm like, wow. You know, I mean, it's cool and everything, but okay. <laughs> they were obviously desperate. You know, but they also put you know really good people on there, and that's why you know people who really know what they're talking about. So that would be a great way to get the word out about what you're doing. But the reason that came to my mind was Carlton Brown is the name of an architect who uh, works on making green, sustainable apartment complexes in Harlem, you know, like in the ghetto. He takes these old apartment complexes and then he refurbishes them 
with green technologies. He puts mm-hmm. uh, geothermal heating and cooling in the bottom of the place, and the geo- in the, it's so much more efficient than any kind of gas heating, electric heating, you know, and it, it lowers the cost of living of everybody in the apartment complex considerably. You know, these are the kinds of technologies that are available that people just don't know about. You know, I remember, you know, I bring this up almost constantly, actually the same story as I was arguing with a capitalist, and I was like, look, the energy is here. You know, he's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, geothermal. He's like, geothermal, Star Trek, that's not real. I was like, you know, did you know that Iceland is like 70% powered by geothermal energy? And people just don't know. You know, that's one of the reasons that we're at this educational Mm -hmm. phase in the Zeitgeist movement is because we're trying to get people to the point where they're even willing to comprehend or think about the stuff that yeah. you guys are doing. And it takes a certain angle, and that's what Peter specializes in. You know, Jock is pretty good at that, is to try to get people to recognize that what's really getting in the way of their freedom, it's not politicians, although that has something to do with it. It's not, you know, it's, there's, there's just like a small little fraction of the real problem. And the real thing that's keeping you from being free is ignorance of technology and how it can actually liberate you. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what we're kind of working on at this stage. And, it, it, you know, once we get beyond that, we have talked about pooling our resources together, the first experimental city. When that time happens, we're obviously going to need help from you, people like you guys, you know, and we're going to try to put together a city that functions on a resource-based economy that the whole purpose mm-hmm. of it is is to demonstrate, you see, look at this. You could be doing yeah. this. You could be doing this right now. Why aren't you doing this? You know, and mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. I'm talking to people, I usually try to scale it down a little bit more. I'm like, well, look, you know, you know people can get off the grid, right? They're like, yeah. Like, okay, so one person decides to get off the grid. He's not really, it's not like, you know, because people, they, they, they panic when we say we're going to take their money away. We're not going to take it away anyway. It's a matter of trying to make money irrelevant. You know, so you just, you got to scale it down for them or they panic. You say, okay, well, I, what if you add solar for your, you know, for your electric and geothermal for your heating and cooling, and you had a, uh, you know, you had your own house that was designed in a green fashion so that it was very efficient. You know, then you had your own um, hydroponics for bad weather. You know, otherwise just regular old gardens, greenhouses. You know, they have those hoop houses now. I don't know if you guys have looked into that, but it's literally just plastic around some PVC. And it apparently, mm-hmm. if you design it right, it takes the, it makes it 40 degrees warmer in there than it is outside. So you can plant like full gardens even in terrible weather with a very inexpensive little contraption. I've got a newspaper mm-hmm. about it. Um, you know, it, you know, it just now you've done all of this stuff and now your your actual consumption is so low. You know, and that is, you know, that's freedom, right? There's nothing wrong with any of that. And they're like, "Well, no, that sounds pretty good." Okay. So now imagine a community of people come together and they all decide to do this. You know, willingly, there's no coercion. Only people who want to do it, right? They're like, oh, yeah, sure, you know, that that's fine. I'm like, okay, so now a city, you know, and then they're like, okay, yeah, I can see that, you know, okay. You know, then you say, well, then what if the world, the human species, figured out that they could do this together and then we all decide to do it, you know? And then they get quiet for a minute. Because one of the other problems we have is there are so many conspiracy theory people running around like Alex Jones telling us that the word global, you know, or cooperate or share, that these are four-letter words. <laughs> you know, you're not allowed to say those words. Whoa. He said global. Oh, my God, he said global. 
he, he said the Earth, you know, the people, they might work together. It's, it's, obviously a, it's obviously a big conspiracy to take over. Like, that's the exact opposite of what I'm telling you. I'm trying to give you information on how you can totally make yourself independent of the system, how it doesn't matter what the rich do anymore. It doesn't matter what the aristocracy does. They can go, you know, masturbate with their money if that's what they want to do. I'm trying to set you free, you know, yeah. and it, it takes a while to get past them. And I honestly, it makes me wonder about this because the funny thing is that Alex Jones guy, uh, total conspiracy nut, absolutely hates the Zeitgeist movement and hates the Venus Project. And he goes after us endlessly. And I'm just like, you know, why would he do this? I'm like, well... I guess it threatens his existence, you know. If, if, if the Zeitgeist movement or the, the Venus Project became the world or the world became open source, he'd have, no, he'd have nothing to complain about anymore. Absolutely. Because we, he'd go out of business because, you know, if, if there is a new world order, they're irrelevant at that point. You know, okay, right. fine. You guys can go do your thing. We, we don't care. <laughs> mm-hmm. Have have fun. You know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah. good point you make. Also, I think um, levels of consciousness comes into it as well because if you have the consciousness where you kind of are aware of the of the um, of the possibility, or let's say you take the aristocracy, their level of consciousness, they're probably not aware that you know we could the lower classes society could free themselves um, and then they wouldn't need to look after the lower levels of society if you want to put it that way let's say and I'm sure they would feel much freer and appreciate the fact that they could also be freed up by these technologies as well which kind of in my mind anyway eliminates any conspiracy through that they're kind of holding us in a certain position because you know, it would also if they were conscious of how much it would free them up as well, and I'm sure they would love the ideas that we're we're putting forward as well. Well, that's you know the thing is is that I've I've looked at that very heavily because I I dabble in conspiracy theory here and there, you know, just mm-hmm. to check it out because it's interesting. I like watching the stuff about 9/11 or the JFK assassination and things like that, and I have some questions about it. I just don't think that focusing on it is really going to solve anything, and that's why I tell people in the Zeitgeist movement because we do get because the first Zeitgeist film was just loaded with conspiracy theory, and I you know we get a lot of people who are really into that, and I tell them look you know it isn't a good idea to focus on any of that because you're just going to polarize everybody. There's going to a lot of people who don't even want to get into that. That's fine. They don't need to get into that because if you're you're going to get what you want. If we go to an open you know to a resource-based economy, then false flag terrorist acts are going to cease because there's no point in them, because there's no war anymore. Because people don't need other people's resources to survive. You know, you're going to get what you want. But if you continue to force this and cram it down people's faces, you know, throats, they don't, they don't want to hear it anymore. And then you get guilt by association. We have people, for example, who, who won't take a resource-based economy ser- you know, seriously because one of Peter Joseph's other films talked too much about religion, a totally irrelevant topic. You know, yeah. and that's, that's why you have to be careful about it. And I tell people, I'm like, just, just focus on solutions, okay? You know, I understand, you know, you right. don't like false like terrorism. I don't like it either. But you're not going to solve it by continually talking about it because the people who want to hear about that have already heard about it. And the people who don't want to hear about that will just not listen to another word you say. <laughs> it's a good point. That whatever you focus on will become a reality in your own world as well because if, if you believe that, that there's a up and a them or that there's a a group of people out to to harm you, then you're going to find evidence to support that. It, 
you know, you, whatever you, you think of, you will find evidence to support your point of view. And then that will kind of bring that, that whole circle into fruition, if, if, you, will, if you will. Uh, and so it's a very good point you make, but if you fo- if you, instead of focusing on, on, on the, the scary, the, the negative, if you focus on the positive, then before you know it, not only will you be a happier person, but it will, the positive will also become a reality. Well, you know, and I tell people, it's not that we shouldn't keep things like that in mind. I mean, Peter put the economic hitman in his film, you know, to try to, to demonstrate to people that, you know, that there are very real problems. And, you know, but it's, it's a question of then the rest of the film is about how do we fix it. it. It's not about wasting endless hours of our time forever talking about what amounts to the symptoms. That's like if you're a doctor and somebody's got a disease and the symptoms are coughing and, you know, all that, but it's going to kill him, you don't spend your whole life trying to cure the coughing. You try to figure out what's going to kill him and then you cure it. (laughs) You know, you don't spend hours and hours talking about, and then the patient was coughing and then he was wheezing and then he was blowing his nose and then he was coughing and then he was wheezing. You know, like, hey, we we have that down now. Let's move (laughs) to the solution. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a paradox that I sometimes have in my mind. Whether to focus on because the problems definitely motivate people to work towards the solution. So it is a positive to stress problems in that situation. And sometimes when I explain, for example, the direction we're working on here, it's I have that kind of what how kind of gauge what angle I should go. Should I? explain, give reasons why it's important to move in this direction, or so I just go straight to the positive, you know, we can have open source, blah, 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 we can um, free up, you know, we can undercut other markets, we can basically free up people to become independent and more integrated human beings in their own environment, mm-hmm. or, or should I, you know, point out we should do this because there's all this money, tax, funding, war, blah, blah, blah. There's, you know, the whole society that's ignorant to these facts that they're enslaved to 95 jobs, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's a fine balance, and I, and I find that one a, a tricky one. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it is important to, to diagnose. You know, once again, we go back to the doctor. I can't fix it unless I know it's broken. And in some cases, you can't get anybody to be motivated enough to fix it unless you've gone over it. It's kind of a question of you don't do it to death, and you certainly don't do it in controversial ways that will just polarize everybody. You know, like I tell people, for example, there are a lot of atheists in the movement, and I tell them, well, that you don't have to be an atheist to be to value a resource-based economy. In fact, I know Christians who would love this idea. You know, no war, no fighting, no poverty. You know, that's great. You know, in fact, my brother is an engineer, used to work for the Air Force, and, you know, he's involved in the ministry. Obviously, I'm not going to show him Zeitgeist 1, but there's no reason I can't talk to him about, well, why don't we make, you know, systems to feed people, systems to take care of people. You know, that's an example of something that, you know, if you're worried about the negative effects of religion, sure, I am too. But it's been proven over time that science kills superstition. And the more we cultivate science, which our proposed environment will absolutely do that, the less power religion has to be oppressive. You know, if people want to study those philosophies from the positive end, then fine. You know, and if they have negative attitudes about it, the one thing we will say is that, you know, we're not going to be theocratic in any fashion. If you have a religion 
we're not, you know, not going to stop you, but you're not going to bring it into the meeting where we're discussing how we're going to build a geothermal plant and protest to us about how you don't want to do it because of your religion. Unless you can prove it, we're not going to be into that. But on the other hand of that, we don't need to spend all of our time telling somebody they're an idiot because they believe in Jesus. We don't need to focus on that all the time. We can focus on just let's be logical, let's use the scientific method to make our decisions, and then go from there. And that will solve so many problems. You know, and that's why I tell people, I'm like, you know, it's, we have to be very careful about how we approach this. And this is one of the reasons why we tell people that, you know, there's a reason that there are spokesmen for the Venus Project. There's a reason why people are appointed to these tasks. It's not because we're supposed to be some, you know, invisible hierarchy. The method by which I became a spokesman was I just demonstrated to Jacques and Roxanne that I knew what I was talking about. There's no reason more people can't do that. It's just that they want to be confident that you're going to represent it correctly. Because this is another thing, like, you know, this is a, you know, this could very easily turn into an ism. And isms get screwed over when any, whenever they are ever demonstrated badly. You know, for example, you can't even say the word communism without conjuring up the Red Scare and the, you know, and the, you know, the, the gulags and the Siberian Express and all that other jazz. You, you can't even talk about the concept anymore without scaring the hell out of people. And that's something that we're very careful about because we already get compared to communism and socialism all the time. You know, and, and I've been trying to tell people that there are very fundamental differences. And one of the major ones is that, for example, you know, um, we're not trying to get people to work for society in so much as be able to make, make this infrastructure be able to work for people. You know, and that there are a lot of jobs that Marx expected everybody would just be willing to do you know, that we know that that's not realistic. That's why we seek to automate a lot of those jobs. There are, there are other fundamental differences, but that's another reason why we're careful about how we approach this, because we don't want to be the next communism. We don't want to be that, that thing that gets labeled negatively to the point you can't even talk to those people. You know, that's, you know, for example, I've had, you know, the Socialist Party candidate for the United States, Brian Moore, on my radio show, and I, was, I took a lot of flack for even being willing to talk to him. But he was a nice guy. You know, he, he, he really cared about people. I had the, uh, the World Socialist Movement. I had uh, one of their spokesmen on my show, Patty Shannon, uh, the filmmaker for Capitalism and Other Kids Stuff. You know, and, you know, he was a great guy. You know, and I, I don't agree with everything they say, but, you know, they're not evil people. But there have been some people who have misrepresented their ideas in a way that I can understand why people would be worried about it. You know, so that's an example of one of the reasons why we're in this critical phase of trying to get people to understand, um, you know, what the direction is. Because that's another aspect of this that, this is, that is kind of difficult, is that there are aspects of this that are so important, and if you don't have them lined up correctly, any e effort you're going to make is going to fail. There are, there's dozens and dozens of years of, well, hundreds of years of examples of failed communes, and you have to learn from the mistakes that those people made so that they don't reoccur. That's why Jack Reed from Community Planet, he interviews people and, you know, talks to them and then they work on consensus decision making. They work on, you know, eliminating negative politics and eliminating aggressive politics from their vocabulary in the first place. You can't get away with, you know, ad hominem and personal attack in a Community Planet, you know, uh, community. In fact, you know, that's kind of something that's going to get you asked to leave. You know, that's an example of the kind of stuff that kind of needs to go away you know, because, you know, it's just like Marchin said earlier, we want people who are, you know, inclined to work hard and 
who feel satisfaction in that work, you know, and, you know, are essentially, I mean, I forgot the word he used, but basically people who are invigorated and inspired by hard work that benefits all of mankind, you know, and it's interesting that that is a satisfaction that each one of us have in us inherently, that it almost seems like the system has taken that from us. We are told that if we do not work so hard to maintain our individuality, that we are therefore slaves or we are not free. We have taken away the community aspect. You know, mankind is a communal animal. And it doesn't mean that you should have to sacrifice your personal rights, but it's important to recognize that what you do for the group that you happen to belong to still benefits you. You know, and if you only act only for yourself without consideration for the group that, you know, you're still part of, then that inevitably comes back down on you too. You can't get away with doing that forever, and our environment is proving that. There are too many companies involved that are basically going out of their way to do whatever it takes to make more money for themselves with no concern for anybody else, and it's causing a permanent, you know, it's basically taking a permanent toll on the earth. Whether you believe in global warming or whatever it is, it doesn't change the fact that this is a very relevant and real problem. You can't continue to urinate in your house and not eventually stink it up for everybody. <laughs> that's you know, that's generally the euphemism I use. So, mm-hmm. now, um, but anyway, um, we we talked a little bit about collaboration, and I've told people now. May uh, go ahead and have you plug your website again, Marchin. Tell everybody where they can learn about you. OpenFarmTech.org slash weblog. That's the that's the log of all the updated events that happen here. Yep. Excellent. And they can watch. You guys have a you guys have a um, YouTube channel. Uh, plenty of that. If you go to the weblog OpenFarmTech.org slash weblog, and OpenFarm T E C H. Yeah, there's plenty of videos linked there, and we had our the uh, guy here who was doing documentary stuff for a documentary for next year's school project. So we've got a bunch of quality video from, from him, from Sean, so you can enjoy that. We, there's some, we're starting to get some, some good presentation material. And also we're working on a, on a it's called a, an explainer video, basically a super basic kind of an explanation of what we're trying to do, and one of our supporters is helping us with that. So there's going to be more good stuff. And... I think let's kind of wrap it up. I'm going to be actually applying for the TED Fellows program. I got to write that application tomorrow morning before noon before before it's the time is up. I should have thought but of that. I should Ted. Keep going. Yeah. Uh-huh. Maybe you know we, we managed to get them to invite uh Peter and Jacques. Maybe I can organize people to get you guys invited cuz if you bother those yeah. TED people enough, they'll invite you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And what was interesting this time around, actually, the the TED people contacted me that no one has re- referred me. They just thought we were doing cool stuff, is what they said. So oh, I should apply. Great. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, um, Ex- thanks for being yeah. on so long, guys. I mean, yeah, I- this was excellent. Good, good discussion we had today. Uh, appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's you know basically uh, thanks again, guys, for tuning in, and uh, thank everybody for tuning in to V Radio. Um, that's, you can check us out at vradio.org, v-radio.org, and I also have a link to open source ecology in my links section. Um, you know, please consider, uh, I mean, obviously I've got my own donation widget up, but you guys pretty much helped me for the most part of this month. 
Yeah, please consider getting involved and helping to fund what's going on over at Factory Farm because that's the other thing I really liked about what you guys were doing is you do those videos where you show where, you know, what the money is being used for. You know, you, you show what it is, what the projects are that you're doing, what the mm -hmm. products are that you're producing. You get to see the, the work, you know, your money in action, and you're only asking for $10 a month, which is like pittance really in comparison to the garbage that people do stuff, you know, with mm -hmm. stuff. And, you know, it's... Um, I, you know, I'd encourage people, you know, to also look forward to uh, Marchin put an article that's going to end up in our uh, Zeitgeist newsletter. Um, and I'm hoping to see more and more from you guys. You know, feel free to submit more articles. Like anytime you want to, you know, maybe give out like a description of a certain product or, you know, that you guys are putting together open source, you know, things like that. We're always looking for good information from people like that. And, and as I said, I will try to get Peter in touch with you about the possibility of you being interviewed for Zeitgeist 3. We'll see how that works out. So. Yeah, that would be great. All right. Well, okay. thanks a lot, guys. Um, go ahead Thank and you. say good night. And uh, yeah. thanks for being on so late. I know it must be late for you guys, too. And, okay. Uh, I appreciate it. So mm -hmm. take care. And it was great okay. having you on V-Radio. Yes, so much. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Great work. Until next yeah. time. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh -huh. Well, that was uh, Marcin Jagabowski and um, OpenFarmTech.org. Please make sure you check them out um, and his associate as well. It was great to have them on. I'm going to leave you guys with some words from Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jacques Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.